Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is not Jonah Goldberg, but this is the Remnant Podcast. This is Jack Butler, Jonah's erstwhile amanuensis, and I am recording this introduction as an act of public shaming because I forgot to save or somehow otherwise deleted the introductory file that Jonah originally recorded for this podcast. So I'm now pulling, uh, hosting introductory duties, so I have to say a couple of things. First, thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever other websites there are. Over, Overcast, I think, is one. This podcast is brought to you by Conversations with Crystal, and I know that means basically nothing coming from my mouth, so thankfully for our sponsor, I did not lose the ad that Joan recorded, which will be in the main body of the podcast. So I'm just mentioning that now for introductory purposes. And what else do I have to mention? Please review the, the podcast on iTunes, buy Suicide of the West, keep listening to the podcast, and enjoy what you're about to hear, which is the part one of a two-part interview with Russ Roberts, Hoover Institution fellow and host of Econ Talk. The host of one podcast is going to now be the guest of another. That sort of thing is allowed in this strange podcast world. So, since I know I'm the least important part of this podcast, I'm just going to get right to it. Hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. As I've mentioned a bunch of times on previous episodes of this uh, fully functional podcast, one of my favorite, arguably my favorite podcast for the last five or ten, not ten years, probably high, five years, has been uh, Russ Roberts' Econ Talk. And there was a while there where it was basically, except for a couple things on NPR, it was the only podcast I regularly listened to. And I would sort of geek out and you would find me, people could see me walking in the park with my dogs, sort of arguing having a conversation with nobody in particular and they thought I was on a phone. In fact, I was just sort of blurting out, doing the podcast equivalent of yelling at the TV as Russ was talking to somebody or other. And I, I, I want to do this up front. It's a little awkward. I was just talking to Russ, who's in the studio, about how doing podcasts in person is a little uncomfortable because you have to make eye contact with people and it can be awkward and um, there's a certain amount of safety that you get from doing it by remote. And so one of the things I want to do just very quickly is just get all the compliments out of the way up front so that later when we're arguing about anything, I don't have to keep stipulating how much respect I have for you. But one of the things – What if people aren't – what if they're fast-forwarding through this, this <laughs> part and they miss it? I think you need to periodically, just like people say – and I don't do this, but people say, you, know, you should identify the program like halfway through or who the guest is. Yeah, that's a radio people thing. people forget. It is a radio thing. Yeah. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's Russ Roberts. He's a uh, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and the host of Econ Talk. Now, Econ Talk has been around for how long? Uh, Twelve years, okay. two thousand six. So I didn't know about it until about two thousand ten. I want to say somewhere in there. And someone, a friend of mine, said, "Oh, you got to listen to that because I was talking about something that you had just done." And so one of the things I like the most about Econ Talk is that it is, uh, and about about Russ, who this is the first time we've ever actually met is that Russ constantly at least tries to identify his own 
biases and be honest about them. And that is something, This is we'll get into the details on this later, but this is really hard for people to do. And the fact is everybody has biases. The differences between people aren't between the unbiased and the biased. It's the differences between people who acknowledge their biases and understand their biases and therefore are willing to see their premises questioned and they're honest with themselves about it and people who just and i russ doesn't do ad hominem so i will just say this people who have a more krugman-like attitude towards these things and simply assume that they have an almost oracular grasp of of the reality of everything and never want to even entertain that they have biases but also russ is a remarkably fair and mensch-like interviewer and um, I've learned an enormous amount from Econ Talk, and, uh, and I had a great episode um, where I went on to talk about my book, and I threatened Russ that I would invite him to come on here, and he said, yes, the fool. So <laughs> um, welcome to The Remnant. Turnabout is fair play. Nice <laughs> to be here. So why did you – so like in internet years, I'm Methuselah, <laughs> but in podcast years, you're basically one of the – one of the earliest adopters, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. When you started, was it already called a podcast? Uh, yes, I think it was. Okay. Um, why did you start it? Uh, I started because I was late to blogging, uh-huh. and I thought, I'm not going to be late to this. Uh, maybe it won't be a good thing. I had thought for a number of years that um, maybe it'd be fun to have a radio show. I just couldn't imagine doing anything like that on a regular basis. And I thought, but here I have control over it. I'll try it for a while, see what it's like. And I was a guest on someone's podcast. I asked them how many downloads they had, and they said 3,000. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's they were they didn't think that was a big number. But I did because I thought, wow, 3,000 people are sitting in a room, a, a concert hall, and I'm going to be sitting in the chair in the front talking. Wouldn't I want to show up at that yeah. in that room? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I guess I would, and I just didn't have any idea of how burdensome it would be. Uh, and I started off in the first few months having them be occasional, and then I decided they had to be every week. Yeah. And um, it turns out I can do it every week. People, people said at the beginning, you're, you're going to run out of people to interview, <laughs> which seemed a, a concern, yeah. uh, but it's not, uh, partly because we're in the golden age of people trying to make economics more interesting and also because you can interview some people more than once. And for more, more than that, you don't have to interview economists. So, uh, <laughs> well, you interview is, quite a few economists. I do, but it has broadened dramatically, I'd say, in the last few years to be about things related to economics and not so much about economics per se. Right. Although I occasionally do interview the hardcore economists, and there's a bunch of those coming up. So, so in your second most recent episode, you had Jerry Muller on, who I'm a it's Mueller, not Mueller. It's Mueller, actually. Mueller. It's spelled Mueller. Yeah. Pronounced Mueller. Um, yeah, Jerry Mueller on, who I'm a, a, a huge fan to a fan of, and I've read a lot of his books. And um, his latest book, we'll just plug it, is The Tyranny of Metrics. Correct. And one of the things you were talking about in there is, uh, and I could hear it because I'm in this sort of podcast brain mode these days, too. It's sort of like that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine is so fascinated by her stock options, she assumes everybody else is fascinated by them, too, sure. where you're talking about how to figure out the metrics of how to judge a successful podcast, right? And so you're in a little weird position. You don't do advertising. Correct. And your, spo- your sponsor, backer is... Our sponsor is Liberty Fund. Right. It's it's run by them. It's not just that they support it. It's Liberty Fund has a number of extraordinary economic and philosophical and law-related activities. They started mainly as a book publisher, but right. they were started by a man, Pierre Goodrich, from Indianapolis, who believed in the power of conversation. Right. 
and great ideas. And so they've kept a lot of books in print that otherwise wouldn't be. They run conferences for small groups of people to talk for three days to each other. I've done a few. Great books. It's an incredible uh, thing. And somewhere around 2000, they realized, well, this internet thing might be important. What should we do? So they started a website at the Library of Economics and Liberty, econlib.org. And I was there from the beginning of that, and we added various pieces to that. One of the things we have added is the podcast, which is EconTalk. So we don't we don't take ads. We don't have uh, sponsors. We just it's funded by the Liberty Fund. Yeah, um, and Liberty Fund, less people think is some ominous sounding thing. It's just a wonderful organization that does everything that Russ said. They put out books that no profit-driven publisher would. And they're beautiful books. Yeah. They have, they, they have all the works of Ricardo. They uh, they used to have uh, – well, they just – they publish all kinds of things related to the to the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, great works of philosophy, great works of economics. Um, and they, they're nice. They're physically, aesthetically pleasing yes, that's editions. Right. So, nice thing. but one of the things you talked about was how um, it's hard for you to figure out how to like you're saying as a hypothetical you could figure out you could be monetized by how many listeners you have but then if you have if you do that then all of a sudden your editorial judgment becomes different because you're thinking about what will get the most listeners rather than what is the most worthy conversation to have right? which yeah but on the surface i mean i think this is the essence of of the the deep point about jerry Mueller's book one of the reactions i got one of my favorite reaction to that podcast was that episode was somebody wrote me and said this was absurd. You should have had the other side on. And I thought, the other side? The people who think you should be fooled by metrics? <laughs> and I looked at the person who said it. The person was a data scientist. And I think what he meant was we had swung too far in the other direction. We had we had mocked metrics too much. So let me give the, use the, your example as an example of I think how you should – you have to use metrics to some degree, but you have to keep them in perspective and how challenging it is. So I would never say the number of listeners is irrelevant. Right. That would be That would be – Silly. It's, I, I want lots of listeners. I wish I had, oh, I don't know, two to four times as many would be nice. I, that would be great. Ten times as many would be nice. Uh, but if that were my goal, or more importantly, if I were compensated by Liberty Fund by how many listeners I had, that would change what kind of program I had. It would right. be angrier, rantier. Uh, more about less, Stormy Daniels. <laughs> say more or less Stormy Daniels? More about Stormy More Daniels. Stormy daniels <laughs> yes. Stormier. Uh, and... That's not a good thing to me. I, right. I have an educational goal for the program, and uh, obviously, it's not just how many listeners you have; it's what they experience that is, we hope, transformative, educational, slightly entertaining. Uh, so, I'm not a- averse to listenership. I want there to be listeners, but if I'm focused on listenership, I would probably make editorial decisions that I would regret or that Liberty Fund would not be happy with. So, it isn't the relationship that we have, but it's it's a balance, right? I, mm. I do want to. I want more listeners. Sure, sure, sure. But I, if that's my sole focus, um, there's a great line uh, I quoted in uh, in my book, The Invisible Heart. Uh, Merck, the founder of Merck, Mr. Merck, uh, the pharmaceutical company, had a great motto or saying that that he shared with employees, which was, "We're about the patient." Mm-hmm. Our job is to create medicine that saves people's lives and makes them better. And when we do that, our profits are always higher than they otherwise would be. So they're profit motivated. Right. But if, that, if they were only profit motivated, they wouldn't be good at medicine. Right. And they wouldn't end up doing as well in profits as they are with this 
it's a sort of uh, self misdirection. It's a self, a form of self. Um, uh, I don't know, deceit mm-hmm. a little bit. Of saying I don't care. I care about listeners, but I'm not going to make that my central concern. I care about profits. Um, and of course, people complain that American business is too profit oriented now, and the quarterly earnings are what drives behavior. Right. And I think great institute, great organizations, great cultures, and great corporations understand that the way you get consistent, successful results isn't by focusing on profits day in day out. There's no. an irony there. Yeah, and so I, so I look at it coming from a journalism background, and you know, my dad was a newspaper man, and one of the things, and I'm sure you have some sympathy for this, one of the things that you miss about physical newspapers or you miss about used bookstores is the serendipity, right? Is that you're um, you're trying to read one article, but then oh my gosh, you see the headline for another thing that's more interesting, and and you're and you wouldn't see you don't necessarily see that on the web, or you're looking for a book in a bookstore. And in the process of looking for that, you find a book that you didn't know existed that is actually more valuable to you or seems more interesting to you. And I look at it, the the metric point that I took away from it is one of the things I like about your podcast, and it's one of the things in my own quirky, dysfunctional way I'm trying to emulate here, is I don't want the podcast to be about one thing. Right. And if you're going to be... If you're going to use your judgment rather than some artificial metric thing, which tends to homogenize your thinking about these things, it means you're going to have hits or misses. Or better put, you're going to have – you're going to do things that are hits for some parts of your audiences and misses for others. So I'd say one out of ten of your podcasts, I give a try and it's just – it's – I get why you're doing it. I don't begrudge you. you. But it's just not for me, you know. And then there were ones where – I'll give it a try, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really interesting. I'm really <laughs> glad I listened to this, right? Right. I think if you had a metric-focused mindset about this stuff, you would have much less of that. And and I'm one of these people who just likes the, you know, you, you throw a lot of pitches out there. You don't like it one week. Take me as I am. But this is – I'm the reason we're doing this podcast is because I'm interested in this. If you don't like it, you got other things to listen to. Yeah, and I think your podcast and to some extent mine succeed to the extent that we're interested in things that other people are interested in. I'm interested in a lot of things. Right. I think you are. I know you are also. Uh, if this was about – if my podcast was about Bitcoin every week, right. I'd have a lot of passionate Bitcoin listeners and no one else. Right. And I think that's not that's not what, I, what I'm interested in. But it, the interesting thing that comes to my mind is that when we think about uh, the world of uh, the 70s and 80s when there were – or the 60s when there were three TV stations yeah. – uh, you got homogeneity, you got mediocrity, and uh, TV wasn't very good. And if you wanted great art, you went to the movies or the stage. And now we live in a world where because of the fragmentation of broadcasting and, and screen time, uh, we're in the golden age of screen production in my view. It's just not on TV anymore. Yeah, It's on, the, right. it's on the internet. It's on Netflix and, and Amazon and elsewhere. But the, the downside of that, and I want to do a, a whole podcast on this later, is that basically my – I'm Gen X – think you can plausibly claim that my generation is the last generation in America with a true mass culture. Yeah. Mass popular culture. Right, you know? sure. And, and the disadvantage, of course, that is that and our podcast world is just like the broadcast world. It's, yeah. it's diverse. There's fair, you can, I'm sure there are Bitcoin podcasts and I'm sure there and there's a lot of generalist podcasts, uh, which, which are all in competition with each other for people's time. And uh, it's mainly a great thing. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's phenomenal, but it does mean that you can't chat about what you saw on CBS last night. Yeah, most people didn't watch CBS last night. Although 
I reserve the right to do that on this podcast, <laughs> but I agree. But I, but I, we agree on the point. So I want to switch a little bit. So this again, I know we're running long, but I want to segue now um, to. Uh, um, first of all, I should uh, take a break and read this ad. Um, okay, so we have to we have to pay the light bill here, and and one of the great things about our sponsor this week is it's uh, I don't have to sell off certain chunks of my soul by endorsing it because. Um, I'm a big fan of Bill Crystal's show, um, which is, and I call it a show because he has it. It's both a video thing that's up on YouTube, and it can be listened to as a podcast, which is the way I usually do it. And it's just simply called Conversations with Bill Crystal, and it's a great piece of intellectual um, fare that uh, is the kind of thing that you can't find certainly on the sort of cable news universe uh, you can really only find in this new sort of wild west of, of podcasts and video casts and whatnot. And uh, you can find me there. I've been on a couple times and you should definitely check it out. It's Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests from Dick Cheney to David Axelrod. They've been more than a hundred, which is great for going back and doing deep dives, which is what I also do with like econ talk. And it's an impressive list. Just to name a few, they've had Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, of course, me. And uh, you can watch it any, anywhere at any time. All of the conversations are at conversationswithbillcrystal.org. And you can subscribe to it on YouTube or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. So if you like my podcast, and if you don't, why are you listening to this? You'll enjoy Conversations with Bill Crystal too. And um, thanks, everybody, and thanks that, thanks to our friends over there for sponsoring this episode of The Remnant. So anyway, um, this point I was making about judgment over metrics, which was the theme. Of, yeah. This is one of these themes, and I apologize to listeners who aren't as fascinated by all of this, but I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's going on in Russ Roberts' head over the last five years or more. So one of the themes that pops up a lot... Um, and when I mean themes, I mean sort of often just in the form of asides or lines of questioning that you have because your podcast is usually about the guest for the most part, is your skepticism about the way economics is taught, right? This sort of the obsession with the math rather than dealing, you know, and you're sort of, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the sort of pinched way looking at uh, – Human beings purely as homo economicus leaves a lot on the leaves a lot on the cutting room floor that probably is very important, right? And that's part of the argument about the metrics, but it comes up in a lot of a lot of um, your podcasts. So now that the tables are turned, can I get just sort of a distinct, discrete explanation of where you see the problem with the sort of economics profession or academic economics in terms of this what they're leaving out with the way they teach it? Yeah, there's actually, I think, three things going on there, at least three. I'll try to remember them so you'll remind me when I forget <laughs> that I've only done two of them. So one is the skepticism about empirical work, um, the application of sophisticated statistical techniques to measuring multi-causal stuff, things that have more than one cause. We're going to isolate the impact of, say, the Obama stimulus plan or increase in the minimum wage. And I have been in the kitchen. So I know a little bit about how that dish gets cooked, mm. and it gets cooked over and over and over again until you find something that is statistically significant or interesting or publishable. I've had many guests on talking about that that bias. Um, 
it's called publication bias, the need to find something that's either statistically significant or interesting. And that could be reproduced. You've talked about that a lot. And it often isn't reproduced is the problem, or it's only reproduced by uh, an enormous number of stretches and absurd things that aren't revealed when the article is published. It gets gets the front page of the New York Times that uh, red wine causes cancer in women. And then you look deeper into the study, you realize, boy, this isn't open and shut at all. And they left this out. And why didn't they do it this way? And they probably had an enormous number of results that that didn't come out at all. Right. And so you never see that. So that whole world, which is the world of economics, it's the world of, of epidemiology. It is, to some extent, uh, it's the world of psychology. Those empirical findings that are the basis of many, many fine uh, popularized books about those research findings, I'm in, I've become – Increasingly skeptical to the point where I'm a little now worried. I'm too skeptical that mm-hmm. I'm that nothing convinces me that I'm always able to say, "Who knows?" Right. Um, I tweeted this morning or last night that you know the Trump tax cut is uh, nobody knows what it really whether it's good or bad, and right. I'm tired of hearing people tell us why it's one or the other with such certainty. Now I think we're good. I personally believe there were some good things about it, and I I feel there were some bad things about it. But what people do is they'll take one piece of it. And they'll wave that around and say, see, I told you it was good. Right. That part I've gotten I, – I can't – I have no tolerance for it. <laughs> I, I really struggle to, to, to watch that. It just – it offends me intellectually. It, it corrodes our discourse. So, so that's the statistical – what's called econometrics. Sure. And it's the bulk of what is – I call it witchcraft, but I uh, – Yeah, same thing. Six <laughs> and one. Uh, that whole area is the dominant interest in economics these days. It's how you make your name. Uh, through an empirical study, through a data set that you have that no one else has. The growing uh, romance we have with big data is is related to that. Uh, I'm sympathetic to Nassim Taleb's description, big data, bigger problems. But mm-hmm. most people think, oh, no, now we're going to know everything. It's right. a matter of, of just honing the techniques, and we have these new techniques. And so I'm a skeptic about all that. So that's one piece of my skepticism mm-hmm. that's grown over the last five years. The second is just the mathematization the, the the point that you emphasized when you described it, that we can describe human beings uh, through mathematical formulas. And I think to some extent we can. There are things that are reliable about human beings. They do respond to incentives. Mm-hmm. We can't measure that with a lot of precision. And I do believe that the focus of economic theory on, on – um, on well-being, which is in general a good focus, mm-hmm. you want to care about what makes people happy, uh, tends to turn us into what I would call happiness engineers. Oh, we just need to manipulate these variables over here and that will produce this well-being, these choices over there and that will make these people happier than they were before. And I just can't uh, – I, I understand. I'm sympathetic to that idea that there are policies that can make the world a better place. But I'm sympathetic that I know what they are, and I'm also sympathetic. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical, skeptical that I know that I that I know what they are, and I'm also skeptical that that doesn't leave out some really important things. So, you know, one of the things that economists tend to do, even though they shouldn't and they know better, is to focus on the material, mm-hmm. focus on money, and money is really important. We mm-hmm. understand that, uh, but I like to make the observation that if I said to you, here's Here's a job. You're going to work hard all year and you're going to bring home $50,000 and you're going to have some ups and downs and you might 
be at risk of losing that job, but at the end of the year, you're going to make it. You're going to stay, keep the job, and you're going to make $50,000. Most economists treat that as identical with, here's a $50,000 check, go enjoy yourself. Right. Because in both cases, you have command over $50,000. What we're not good at is keeping in mind the fact that human flourishing, human self-expression, meaning in life doesn't just come from work, but it comes from a lot of things that aren't material. Right. And so that the focus in every economist, when you say, oh, of course we know that, and yet it's hard to remember that in actual practice. Actually, it's an application of the metrics point. What can I measure your income? What can right. I measure GDP? So let's focus on that. And our big breakthrough is, yeah, but what about inequality? What if it's not spread equally? Well, that's a thing that's worth worrying about. But there's so much more than just material well-being. Uh, the third piece, there is a third piece. Uh, you said um, – I think I tied two together there. I think okay. the, the third piece is the idea that – we get our meaning in life from all kinds of strange and interesting and important ways through community, through uh, love, through marriage, through uh, clubs, through religion. And economics has virtually nothing to say about that. Oh, that's not true. James Buchanan wrote a book on the economics of clubs. <laughs> uh, Gary Becker wrote a book, A Treatise on the – yeah, we do have the occasional foray to show, hey, we're just like sociologists but better. Right. But we're missing something. Yeah. Yeah, it, just, it seems to me there's a lot of looking for your car keys where the light is good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's go back for a second because I look. I agree with that entirely. I am, as you know, you read my book. I'm I'm on the hum- read every word of your book. <laughs> By the way, I didn't just read your book. That's one of the, my. I view that as my goal and responsibility as host. I've heard you talk about this many times. <laughs> uh, I, I remember one time I get, went on. Um, What's the British guy from – used to be on CNN. Um, anyway, Morgan. Piers Morgan. Yeah, I went on Piers Morgan's show for my last book and he – it was so weird. He was looking at my book for the first time and it was so obvious. It was like an orangutan looking at an iPad. He was yeah. just like <laughs> holding it upside down, like, like almost smelling it. Cause it and, um, I, I joked with you, by the way, because I, I don't literally read every word of every book. I sometimes get a book that I realize this was a mistake <laughs> and I only read every page, which is not the same as everywhere, but I read – but in your case, I did read every Well, book. I appreciate that. But no, but it's clear from all the book – from all the authors that you have on that – you know the material. That's what I was just getting at, which is very rare um, uh, in this world. Um, it's worth telling listeners, by the way, that when a publisher sends you a book hoping that you'll interview the author, they will usually send you pre-scripted questions that so that you actually don't have to read the book and can look smart. But, of course, that plays to the goals of the author and the publisher, not necessarily to learning the most or finding the parts that are troubling or whatever. So, uh, But it is a strange thing. And and most interviews about books, the person interviewing the person probably has not read the book. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I have some sympathy for that. If you're a daily radio show host. Hard to do every day. Um, (laughs) But but getting back to what you said before about um, inequality. So I've come to the view that, that as a matter of reason and logic, it is insane or it's, it's, it's silly to get too worked up about inequality if the poor are getting richer and the rich are getting richer, but maybe the rich are overtaking the poor at a pace that you know, isn't ideal, but it's still – that's a better situation than almost any other you know, alternative that if, if the rich are getting poorer and the poor are getting poorer, but the gap between them is getting narrower, that's worse. The reason why I think about inequality, which is why I think economists are so bad about talking about it if they're being honest about it is that it's 
it's a it's a psychological problem. It's something in human nature. If you if you read people like uh, uh, Lita Cosmides and, and John Tooby would write about you know evolutionary psychology and stuff. There is a deep bias within us against shirkers, right? And so the Republican Party tends to be in these really depressing anti-shirker, anti-shirker, right? Anti-taker. They're the anti-takers. But there's also this deep uh, biological or psychological imperative to resent people who take too much of more than their share. Oh yeah, and that's the Democratic Party, right? Yep. And I find both. Obviously, this is a reductionist kind of approach to it, but there's something going on there, right? And and so if that's the driving reason for why we care so much about inequality, it's it's not clear to me that economists have a lot to say about it. And yet I hear it seems like that's the fashionable thing for economists to talk about all the time, as if the goal is to just shrink the distance between rich and poor. Um, that should be the essence of our economic policy. It seems to me the essence of our economic policy if to, pertains to inequality maybe to make poor people richer but who cares i just i i personally don't care about the gap i don't care if there are a lot of people who are richer than me you know well um, play devil's advocate that's cuz you're comfortable and financially successful of course you don't care about the gap but shame on you <laughs> I, I, you're a heartless your scorn is yeah yeah no but you okay so fair enough <laughs> just, no, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to you, to your point yeah. and I, I think you're making a deep point there about the Psychological one is not unrelated to what I was saying earlier about meaning. I think economists do two things. They play two games. One game is the economy's messed up. Here's what we need to do to fix it to make it more just, more right. fair. The second is I don't need to know why it's unjust. I just see that it is. So I just need policies that reduce that gap by re- redistribution. And I think you can believe that there's nothing. So, for example, one argument for why inequality has grown. And as you probably know, I'm highly skeptical about some of the measurements of inequality. We can talk about that if you want, why that's the case, why I don't think inequality is as large or as uh, troubling as it's often thought to be. But put that to the side, and now I've totally lost my train of thought. Oh, so you know, one of the possible reasons that people suggest that inequality has grown is that trade has made certain skills more valuable than others and, and certain skills less valuable. So highly educated people have done very well either because of trade or technology has changed. And that's just a fact of economic evolution that isn't anybody's fault. There's nothing nefarious or or scary or sinister about it, but just a reality. And therefore, we need to help the people who haven't been able to keep up. So that's that's one view. The other view says, oh, no, the whole system is rigged so that certain people cannot get ahead and other people get to benefit and take advantage of other people. And I think you have to keep those really separate and you need to figure out which which one is right. Like you, I care very deeply that – I care much more about whether people can get ahead than whether they can get ahead of others. Right. And the whole idea of getting ahead of others I think is just – is poison for a political process to focus on that. So there's a, there's a lot to be said there. We can talk about as much. OK. So the system is rigged part. So for listeners who don't know, uh, Russ is a is a scholar of Adam Smith. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, he's written several books. Semi-scholar. Um, and uh, – um, and – so my favorite line, which of course, again, this is like bringing Coles to Newcastle kind of thing, quoting Adam Smith back to you. But um, you know, my favorite line from Adam Smith is that bit about uh, never—I'm going to butcher it—but never will you get two trades, two people of the same trade talking to another where the conversation doesn't quickly turn to a conspiracy against the public, right? Yep. And and 
it so this is one of these weird things that I'm kind of obsessed with, going back to the human nature thing, that John Tooby calls it the coalition instinct. This, there's a natural tendency of human beings who share interests to form alliances, to serve their own interests above those of even their own tribe or their family. I mean, siblings can form coalitions to get out of doing chores. It's a, it's a natural thing, scalable to the international uh, relations arena down to the kitchen table, right? And it happens perennially. And the thing that is brilliant about Smith on this point and what the Founding Fathers, I think, really understood was that it was inevitable. That's why the Founding Fathers just simply call it faction, right? That people of like interests will form together. And the only way it's ever dangerous, according to Smith, you correct me if I'm wrong, is when the state intervenes to protect one of these coalitions, one of these factions, a cartel, crony capitalism, a monopoly. You know, a monopoly, as Schumpeter would argue, can't last very long on its own. It can only last in perpetuity when the state comes in and protects it from innovators, right? And this seems to be a big theme. Well, I shouldn't say this. This is a this is one of these chords I hear on on your podcast a lot. And in the Bill James episode, which I thought was really that, that was a classic example of one. I didn't think I would want to listen to that I came away with. Because you're not a big baseball fan? Because I'm not a big right. baseball guy, right? He makes this distinction between, um, was it, I think, knowledge and expertise, right? Mm-hmm. And and then again, in the Mueller, Mueller one, you have this difference between managerialism and management. And it seems to me, and there have been other ones like this, every time you do public choice stuff, I start thinking about this. Um, it seems to me that there is this inherent natural trend in every society Every organization for, uh, you, know, you can call it the iron law of oligarchy if you want, of people to protect their own interests. And it seems to me that there's a big chunk of this going on in economics itself, that economics is essentially you know, what Nietzsche would call like a priestly caste, where they oh, yeah. they want to say that they have the... You have the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. They'll let us put the keys in the right locks. Um, and it seems to be people, people like Jeffrey Sachs. There are a lot of these guys who... And to a certain extent, Paul Krugman, you know, that, you know, it's sort of like Bill Murray in Ghostbusters. just says, back off, man. I'm a scientist. You know, and that, that's, that's supposed to <laughs> settle sure, everything, yeah, right? Sure. And but I, but I would think that, you know, when I you – know, and Bill Easterly, his – you've done some great conversations with him about the tyranny of experts and whatnot. It seems to me that this is something that your crowd, your libertarian, public choice kind of crowd – could mount a really interesting, you know, offensive on and 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 sort of coalesce around an argument about sort of crushing this guild mentality that exists about economists. But you don't see a lot of that coming out of you guys. No, in fact, well, economists don't want to ruin the party. So it's, <laughs> there are only a few who say the emperor has no clothes, that economists don't really know everything they claim to know. I did an episode with Luigi Zingales that haunts me because I think it's so deep and important and no one really cares about it. But we, and he argues that why is the economists treat everybody else like a special interest group except themselves? Yeah, That's your yeah, point. Yeah. Zingales argues that we have self-interest in having a certain view of the world that encourages people to hire us, give us power, and uh, presumably it affects our behavior. Right? The example I always use is Federal Reserve, you know, that <clears> – <throat> Maybe, what, half of the macroeconomists in America think they could have a chance at being the chair of the Fed. <laughs> They're wrong. They're only about 10. But half of them, thousands, think they could be. And so that affects 
how they talk about the Fed, how they yeah. talk about central banking. It, it, it inhibits them from being hyper hypercritical because they don't want to spoil it for themselves. And that's just, it might be subconscious. I don't think they sit around thinking, oh, I'm going to be chairman of the Fed. I don't know if you can hear that on the air, but <laughs> me rubbing my hands together, playing with my mustache. I, I might be able – I don't have a mustache, but I, you know, someday I'll be chair of the Fed. I better not – it's subconscious, yeah. just like it's subconscious for everybody else to, to play by the rules of the tribe and to keep the good thing going and so on. So that coalition is not going to happen. Where you hear it from economists anyway, where you hear uh. it coming from is the um, – what you might call the near economist, something like Nassim Taleb yeah. who has this IYI category, intelligent yet idiot. Yeah. And that's uh, not a very subtle critique of expertise, <laughs> right? He's saying – uh, they're not scientists. They're dangerous. Don't listen to them. And he's relentlessly pounding on that. It's a fascinating tension. I, I'm, you know, very skeptical about the power of reason. I'm, I'm skeptical about uh, the use of, as we said earlier, uh, so-called scientific methods like statistical analysis to over to be overconfident about certain things. And then when you push in that direction, people think, oh. So you're uh, what, like an emotional faith healer? Is right, that what right, you believe right. in? No, actually, science is about being skeptical. It's hard to believe, but that's that balance is hard to keep. So yeah. that's another thing that makes I think very difficult for people to join that coalition. The if you wanted to speak out against expertise, you you, you put yourself at risk of being branded as being in the other camp, mm-hmm. the faith based camp rather right. than the evidence based camp. So I'm. I'm an evidence-based guy. I'm just skeptical about what counts as evidence. Once you enter that realm, people start to think, maybe you're not an evidence-based guy. You're a faith-based guy masquerading as an evidence-based guy to undermine evidence-based thinking. And that's very hard. Nobody wants to be in that club, yeah. uh, in my club. Yeah. People in my club now don't want to be in that other club. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. careful. They're scared. So it's funny. Cause I, Seymour Martin Lipset, who I knew a little bit, who, for listeners who don't know, was the head of the American Political Science Association and the American Sociological Association, which is I don't think you could do today, and um, and a great social scientist, at least by my lights. He, towards the end of his career, was saying how the social sciences are a hot mess for some of the related reasons that we're talking about, and what they needed. Is that his phrase? No, I like I'm that par- phrase. I'm paraphrasing, That's but good. <laughs> <laughs> but that. Uh, and that social science, and James Q. Wilson was sympathetic to a lot of this too, is that social sciences need to return to the study of history, which is the mother of all social sciences. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, and I think it applies to economists too. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm all jazzed up about this is because for my book, I had to read a lot of Schumpeter. And and, and Jerry Mueller uh, was the guy who, I f- who first pointed out to me that Schumpeter was borrowing a bunch of stuff from Nietzsche. And... In Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, Nietzsche makes this argument about how there are two classes of people. There's the the knightly class, right? The men who work live who live by their strength and their might, and they make their own morality, right? And the priestly class, who are basically the backseat drivers of civilization, and but they're intellectuals, and the way they undermine the knightly class is by using words. Very Deirdre McCloskey point, and they turn what were for the knightly class virtues, strength, you know, honor, all these kinds of things, into vices. And so this is Nietzsche's indictment of Christianity. Bullying, violence, thuggery. Yeah. Right. And so and all of a sudden meekness and um, and poverty and all these kinds of things become virtues in, under Christianity. Now, again, I'm not buying Nietzsche's analysis about Christianity, but this dynamic, I think we can see all – I'll put it this way. I see all around me is this sort of – 
new class attempt to sort of undermine capitalism, to talk down capitalism, to talk down Western civilization. Because by doing so, you know, whenever you hear someone say, you know, they really do it, they really treat intellectuals better in France. What you know what they're really saying is, I want to be treated like a French intellectual here in America. Yeah, right. Sure. And so this is a very roundabout way to get to my next topic with you, because one of the things when I'm muttering to myself, listening to econ talk is every now and then, I don't think you've ever done an episode on pragmatism. I don't think I have. Yeah. So, but every now and then, so you mention how pragmatism is this thing that you like. Yeah, I do. And, and normally when I hear people say they like pragmatism, I assume they mean small p, they mean small p practicality. Yeah, right? correct. But you actually, I every, don't mean that. But every now and then you <laughs> drop that you've read Pierce and these guys and you know this stuff. And so it, I have a well cultivated rant against pragmatism, okay. philosophical pragmatism. But I want to hear your case for it first before it sounds like right. I'm being unfair. So I'm going to make a personal confession here. When I was in college, I was an econ major and at UNC, North Carolina, you had to take 10 social sciences along with, with your major in econ and a social science. So uh, my dad had a master's – has a master's in psychology, which he despises and despises the field. So he ruined psychology for me <laughs> until about 10 years ago when I started to f realize that there were people who were psychologists who were smart and I could learn from and, and could improve my life yeah. uh, and an understanding of the world around me. But when I was 18 years old, that wasn't the case. I viewed it as a total intellectual cesspool, and I threw in sociology and anthropology as well. So that was a problem. Uh -huh. You have to take 10 classes in the social sciences, and you can't take psychology, sociology, and anthropology. Right. And political science was near but close. So I ended up taking uh, mostly philosophy, which, uh -huh. thank goodness, UNC classified as social, in the social science um, under that umbrella, or courses in, like, history or English that had a soci that had a, so a social sciencey bent, uh -huh. like a history class on uh, a literature class on, say, capitalism or yeah, yeah. whatever. So I filled all my, so I took a lot of, I took a lot of philosophy in, uh -huh. in college, and I remembered some of it, which okay. is what we're going to talk about. But I want to <laughs> don't make tell it, Brian Kaplan. I want to make it. Yeah, I know it ruins his world too. But I, and it's a, that's quite interesting actually. But I want to I want to make a an observation before we talk about pragmatism, which is. I have heard or read the word Nietzsche uh -huh. more in the last six months than any time <laughs> in the previous 40 years. All right. I studied Nietzsche a little bit in, uh -huh. in college. I read – I think I read uh, Zarathustra and I read uh, Maybe Beyond Good and Evil. I finished one of them listening to Wagner. I put Wagner on <laughs> as this really transcendent experience. It was fantastic. Uh, and I just – Never thought about him again, yeah. except for occasionally when the idea of resentment, which is this yeah. idea of where where you're, you're so jealous of someone else's success that instead of being just jealous, you decide it's it's the success isn't even something to aim for. You downgrade even the goal that if you can't ha achieve it. I think that's, that's what deep, the priestly class does. That's a deep, it, yeah, it's exactly your yeah. point, and that's just a deep insight I think into human nature. But other than that, the occasional thought about that, I haven't thought about Nietzsche in forever. And then somebody tells me about Jordan Peterson. I start watching Jordan. Oh my gosh, it's all about Nietzsche. I'm reading The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. There's a lot of Nietzsche in there. Yeah, yeah. You're telling me about Nietzsche. This is crazy. <laughs> this guy who, you know, I think most people associate Nietzsche with um, 
oh yeah, he was the guy the Nazis liked. Yeah, he actually it's a little unfair. It's a little just a titch unfair and doesn't serve your interests well, listener. Yeah, uh, you might want to think about uh, one other footnote on Nietzsche, and then we'll get to pragmatism, which uh-huh. is uh, which is very related, by the way. Yes, I, it is. Erwin <laughs> Erwin Yalom, uh, the the psychologist, wrote a glorious book called When Nietzsche Wept, which mm. is a fictional imagining of Nietzsche undergoing psychoanalysis. Oh, geez. And it's a great book. Huh. Really recommend that book. Um, it's and Yalom's a very interesting thinker. But anyway. So pragmatism, I have to confess, uh, other than the fact that I know that it's pronounced Peirce, not Pierce, uh-huh. I don't know a lot about uh, – I haven't read a lot of Peirce actually. Okay. Most of my understanding of pragmatism comes through a professor I took probably three times in college, uh, Richard Smythe, who passed away I want to say about seven or eight years ago. So I, he, he, was a, he was a phenomenal professor. One of the classes I took with him was on the poetry, the philosophy behind the poetry of Wallace Stevens, <laughs> which I didn't understand then, and unfortunately, I still don't understand. Brian would be very happy to hear that, <laughs> Brian Campbell. But, but I got a bunch of understanding of pragmatism from from Professor Smythe, and was fortunate about mm, eighteen years ago or so to reconnect with him. So here's I haven't seen him for thirty or so years. I didn't think he'd remember me. And I contacted him out of the blue because I'd been reading so many things that related to what I'd learned about pragmatism. And I was able to talk to him and and, and I said, uh, have you read any Hayek? Which I, was, I thought, well, he's a professor of philosophy. And he was like, well, of course, because <laughs> Hayek for me is the economist version of pragmatism. So let me tell you what I mean by pra- – what I understand okay. pragmatism to be. And I – I'm going to keep digressing here because you told me to digress. I, digressions are so fine. I'm going to digress They're one more fine. time. That's fine. And one story that we heard about Peirce, Charles Peirce, the one of the prominent pragmatists, is that when, when he built a house, um, he 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 devoted, I think, the second floor to a ballroom uh-huh. that he would uh, use for a celebration when he discovered the uh, secret of the universe. <laughs> and in the line of the biographer describing this, he says, while the ball was never held, comma, <laughs> I always loved that. I just thought that was the essence of the intellectual life to some extent. Hubris followed by reality. So my understanding of pragmatism is an over is an awareness of the dangers of overworshipping reason. That it, it's a human mm-hmm. understanding that emotion comes first and that reason comes second. My favorite quote for this came from uh, from Benjamin Franklin, again through Professor Smythe. When fortresses and virgins get to talking, the end is in sight. <laughs> so when you are besieging something or someone and they start negotiating, they're going to find a way to convince themselves it's okay to give in. You see this in Jonathan Haidt's work. His metaphor is the uh, is the man riding an elephant. Right. The, the driver is your brain. The elephant's your emotions, your heart. You think you're in charge as the brain. The elephant goes where it wants and the, and the rider convinces himself he's actually holding the reins. And this this insight, I think, into, into human nature is just profound. So it's an anti-Cartesian, mm-hmm. anti-Descartes uh, idea. Descartes, you know, Descartes, again, I'm, I'm channeling my, my, uh, my college professor. He said, you're in a boat. Some of the planks in the boat are rotten. You should pick every one of them up and examine them one by one because if there's a rotten one, it shouldn't be in the boat. 
you're fooling yourself into thinking you're living a rational life. Your boat's going to sink for starters. You can't live that way. But this idea that yeah, that somehow that we're all just truth seekers and that uh, we look at the where the evidence takes us, I think is not how the world – how human beings behave. So my pragmatism is a respect – and I would think you would like this. Mm-hmm. No, I, I like this. It's, but a it's, deep, a... it's a deep trust of tradition. Mm-hmm. Another uh, quote from Professor Smythe, uh, your grandmother is right. He said, you know, you, you – you, um, your grandmother, if you ask her, well, why do we do this? She'll say, well, I don't know. And you as the 18-year-old and pointed, I feel this way when I was 18 and, of course, yeah. I still do. Well, if you don't have a reason for it, that's, you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. Right. You only do things you have a good reason for. And I think you know, we're all – not we're all. So many of us who are trained as academics, so-called scientists, so-called experts, we think we're I like the idea that like, if he hadn't had that right declaration, you'd be really like scanning the book. Yeah, when, 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 where's the party? <laughs> so – so my rant's over. Your turn. Okay. So substantively, I really like that, and it's probably the oh, best. I, sorry, I got a footnote. Uh-huh. Last thing, and Hayek is the economist version of that, which is that reasons overstated. Uh, our understanding of the world is overstated. The world's complex. There are complicated interactions that we don't appreciate, and we should be careful and first do no harm. Okay. So I really like that. I think on the substantive point or the 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 the, the, the merits of it. We agree entirely. I will confess that my readings and, and understanding of pragmatism is almost entirely autodidactic. I stumbled into this. It's better than mine. I listen <laughs> to a professor who really is smart and, and charismatic. I stumbled into this while working on my first book, and I was reading about the progressives and where they got their ideas from and what they all this kind of stuff. John Dewey. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, John Dewey was one of America's foremost pragmatic yeah. philosophers. Yeah. And, and so – what you're advising and, and oh so since you had the trivia about uh how to pronounce purse yeah, yeah so purse coins the term pragmatism and then when william james and john dewey take it over as a course of of a thing he, they so ruin what he thought pragmatism was that he changes the name of his philosophy to pragmaticism <laughs> um, because there's like they stole my word from it. oh, that's okay. awesome and so I've argued for a while now that the the as much as oh and for listeners who don't know, Russ was the guiding light behind the Hayek Keynes rap, rap video, yeah. which you got will put in the show notes and everyone should watch. It was a huge deal. With with John Papola, the filmmaker. It was really great. Okay. And I loved it and I think it was incredibly useful. But I've been arguing for a while now that the really great divide of the twentieth century wasn't Hayek Keynes, it was Hayek Dewey. Hmm. And that Dewey believed – Dewey was the antimatter universe. He was the, the bizarro world version of Hayek in the sense that um, Hayek, you know, which you again know more about than I do by far, Hayek understood the knowledge problem, right? That, that there's all sorts of embedded knowledge, that prices send these signals, that no one person can outthink the market in a complex society and all that. Dewey thought you could. Hmm. And Dewey was a champion of expertise. And um, – Let's put let's put pragmatism as what it should be or what, it, what we believe it is to be aside. If you go back and you look at what William James and Dewey were doing, and Dewey was William James's sort of protege, and you look at what Nietzsche and Heidegger are doing in Europe, and this is a point that was made by Richard Rorty, that they both that these two duos basically were about the same project, which was taking a sledgehammer to tradition. 
to taking a sledgehammer to received wisdom, and in the political realm, particularly in America, taking a sledgehammer to liberal democratic capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And so you have all of these pragmatist um, progressive public intellectuals, Walter Lippmann, who admittedly went back and forth on this stuff, but um, Rexford Tugwell, all of these brain trusters um, arguing that the sort of dogmatic thinking of the capitalist era is over. We now need this world of disinterested experts who are smarter than the market, who can plan. You know, when FDR gives his speech about bold, persistent experimentation, which is still celebrated by all historians as this wonderful thing. And I'm like, it's evil. <laughs> Road to serfdom. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, dangerous, dangerous. And and they all invoke William James. They all invoke the spirit of pragmatism. And my argument has been that as a political matter, because what you were describing before about taking out the rotten wood, I think that that's very much what Louis Menand talks about, the pragmatist razor, about stripping ideas down to their, their fundamental metaphysical essence and not having a lot of bad cant and ritual that sort of smuggles in. I oppose that for Hayek on Hayekian grounds. seems to me that sort of the parable, like the parable of Chesterton's fence, you know, there are a lot of things, there's a lot of knowledge embedded in traditions and customs that we can't know where it comes from. If you think about all the trial and error that goes into cuisine, hmm. how many people died eating weird stuff before they realized they had to cook it first, yeah. right? And so there's all this sort of, in a Hayekian sense, embedded knowledge in things. And the pragmatists come forward in the, at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, and they basically say, that's all garbage. We can, through reason alone, we can grok out what we believe to be true. And so my argument has always been that they used pragmatism as a cudgel to destroy competing philosophical and ideological positions while while being blind to their own, that central planning is good, that 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 uh, sort of the cult of unity and collectivization are better than sort of uh, chaotic individualism. And to this day, if you listen to the rhetoric of liberalism up until fairly recently, Barack Obama kept talking about how he's just a pragmatist, he's a problem solver, he doesn't have an ideology – I could do chapter and verse on all the liberal intellectuals who claim that they're not ideologues. Um, they're just pragmatists. They just care about the facts. And they're like, you're the ideologue. And my own view of ideology, I'll defend ideology for a second. All ideology to me is is a checklist of priorities. And it's better to be aware that you have it and say, you know, does, will this issue expand freedom or constrict freedom? Will this Will this make people more prosperous or less prosperous. It doesn't mean that you are sort of dogmatically bound with this tunnel vision to do something. It's a, it's it's an acknowledgement of what your priorities are. And the pragmatists claim constantly that they see the world without blinders, they don't have an ideology, and they don't recognize that they have one smuggled in into even those claims. Well, they're reality-based. Right. Not like you who's living in a fantasy world. Well, that's, of, that's my point. Blinded by your own ideology. Yeah. Now, I, I, I think all those criticisms are fair. I, I think we've established you know a lot more about pragmatism than I do, except that I know how to pronounce person's name, <laughs> which is we're taking on faith right now. I could be wrong about that. But I agree with all that, of course, in, in terms of the dangers of those things. I do want to mention that you know tradition is a little bit overrated. There's some traditions that are dark, sure. evil, and, and should be Absolutely. put by the wayside. I always like to mention racism. Not everything that your grandmother believes, your grandmother could be a racist, in which case she's probably wrong. It would probably be a good thing to ignore that part of her tradition and trial and error. Sure. 
some trial and error served certain classes at the expense of others, and those are bad, and we should get rid of those. So I'm not I'm not wet I'm not a Burkean, but I respect the Burkean um, project, and I respect the that piece of pragmatism that says some things emerge and evolve that have benefits that we don't fully understand, and we and we play with them at our peril. Right, which is what I take your yeah. observation to be, and I certainly agree with that. And I couldn't agree more that the uh, turn of intellectual life in among the priestly cl- class is mm-hmm. caster class. I go either way. Okay, among he, the priestly class that in, in, at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th that said we can do better than this. We need mm-hmm. to steer things. I think is an unbelievably dark and dangerous road. It led to communism. It, it, it to Stalinism. It led to Hitler and, and Nazism. Uh, that hubris is is the single most dangerous part of the right. of the human condition, which is to collectivize your individual wisdom into a one way for everybody. It's what Smith warned about. Adam Smith warned about in the Man of System, in his passage in the Theory of Moral Sentiments. The expert who thinks he can move pieces around like pieces on a chessboard without regard to their natural ways of motion. I just. So I agree. With, I agree with that, and I and I don't know anything about that yeah. role that pragmatism played in that disruption. Um, it is an interesting thing. I think a lot about that view of that claim that you made on on Obama's behalf. Mm-hmm. That well, I'm I'm not an ideologue. I just I'm just a pragmatist, and I do think that in in one's personal life, it's an interesting, deep, interesting question, hard question. Should you have rules, or should you go case by case? Right. So here it is. It's Tuesday night. You feel like wasting four or five hours, wherever, whatever your favorite way of wasting four or five hours is Facebook, Twitter, binge watching House of Cards, whatever, whatever, The Wire, whatever it is. Uh, any one night, you might do that over and over again. But it might be better to have a rule that says, you know, I only watch TV on Saturday nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think the same thing is true, is even more true in the body politic. On a case-by-case basis, you'd say, well, here we ought to intervene. And, and maybe here we could do a little bit better by tweaking this. I think it's much better to have a set of rules. The government can't do this, 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 and this, even though in any one case you might be able to think that it might be better to intervene. I love the constraints yeah. uh, of of the tying yourself to the mast. Simple and, rules for complex society. Exactly. I think yeah. those are very powerful and important. And let us make our decisions and plans accordingly, knowing that the role of government is limited and that we'll be able to make our own – come to our own decisions. So, you know, I'm sympathetic to all that. And I think the – but that idea of small p pragmatism, mm-hmm. I just go case by case, is uh, is incredibly seductive. Right. And it sounds reasonable and it is reasonable, but it's a little bit dangerous. And I think it's better to have irrational – seemingly irrational rules. Like, I, again, to take I, – I, I wish I weighed less. And it's better to have a rule that says I don't eat any uh, sweets except maybe on on Saturday. Right. And well, what do you mean? What, 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 we, well, like one candy bar on a Tuesday night is going to be so. Well, no, the answer is I have trouble having one candy bar on right. a Tuesday night, and so I, I tie myself to the mast, or I try to, and I try to have a set of seemingly irrational rules. And I think it's there's a certain irony there that I think the pragmatist has to not be pragmatic because <laughs> you have to realize what your shortcomings are. Right, well, and also, so this is sort of like my complaint about people who say they're against censorship and then i say okay so you think it should be legal to have really robust child pornography on saturday morning television and they're like oh no 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 i wouldn't want that you know that's just reasonable regulation it's like no censorship is we, we censorship is one of those words we only use to describe the censorship we don't like we don't like right and so 
when people say, oh, we don't need these hard and fast ideological rules, I'm like, okay, so what about, you know, homicide? You know, where you come down on that, you know? And it turns out that we actually believe in a lot of hard and fast rules, even the people who claim to be pragmatists and want to take everything as case-by-case basis. And uh, it, was, it was Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, who wrote a wonderful essay, highly recommend, called On Pragmatism, where he kind of nailed this point that inherent in it, again, as a political phenomenon, pragmatism leads us to a place where all important issues will ultimately be settled by ironclads and maxim guns. Because if there is no external theory, there's no external ideal or rule that we all agree upon that cannot be violated about morality or this or that, at the margins, then it's basically a might-makes-right kind of situation. And, um, And I think... There certainly in the 1920s and 1930s, the riot of pragmatism out there that said basically the past has nothing to teach us led to a lot of terrible, terrible things. All right, so this is a little weird. We've never done this before. Uh, the full interview or full conversation with Russ is over, but we went long. Uh, we went longer than the Get Off My Lawn uh, advice show that we do with Charles Murray and Steve Hayward. So this is the longest remnant podcast we've ever done. And since I'm going to be on the road much of next week, we decided on the fly that we're going to break this up into two. And um, I'm not even sure where... This concluding thing that I'm saying right now will appear in the first episode, the first half of this uh, podcast. I think it's somewhere after our conversation that we had about uh, pragmatism and whatnot, which I will tell you, I could rant about ad nauseum for a great period of time. And I have been toying with the idea of sort of doing set piece podcasts where I just sort of do a sort of quasi academic lecture on a topic and rant about it a little bit. Um, oh, you haven't been doing that already? <laughs> I know it may feel like it, but I haven't really done that yet because I haven't prepared. You know, I'm talking about actually preparing things and having notes and doing something like that. And the perniciousness of pragmatism in the 20th century is one of my, my, one of my big obsessions. What do you think of the conversation so far or in its entirety? I mean, this is kind of like a weird time travel thing we're doing here. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of time travel, but we don't need to get into that right now. Um, I just – so I, I, I like these these – uh, libertarian eggheads. They're they they obviously know a lot about econ, but that that seems to them in their conversations they just sort of take that for granted in the sense that like yeah yeah I know Hayek I know I know I know Mises whatever let's talk about these other like five thousand passions that I also have that are bizarre and quirky and that I can also teach you about. So that's that's just that's all that's the sense I always get when when we have encounters like this and I enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, so like the weird thing with Russ is that like. I, he's really been in my head, and the show's been in my head for a long time. I think I kind of made that clear. Um, I think at times I kind of felt like I was bordering on the, uh, like, champ kind in, in Anchorman. I like your musk. Or the, <laughs> or the Chris Farley interview of Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't want to fanboy out too much, but, you know, uh, I really I like Russ's show. And, and clearly we um, have a sort of connection, so it kind of went. It went way long. We have we have a connection. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no fanboying over there. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But uh, I'm a I'm a big fan, and it was clear that he was enjoying himself, and I was enjoying myself. So we just kept going. 
I work on this theory that if you're enjoying yourself, that's sort of a good sign and infectious. And I trust my judgment over metrics on these kinds of things. So if I'm having a good time with this, um, I see no reason to have an arbitrary cutoff for it. Many listeners might. And all I can say to them is Johnny Fever did booger. Um, so anyway, I have to censor that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of various and sundry stuff, uh, this won't appear until after the weekend. So there's no point in sort of ranting about anything about contemporary politics. But again, thanks to everybody who's been buying the book. You can still buy the book. It's still available. Um, I'm hoping it'll have a long tail. I'm about to go on the road promoting the book at nauseum, talking about the book. Um, I'm, you can go to jonahgoldberg.com to find all information about dates that are open to the public. And uh, you can find reviews. You can find what people are saying about it. You can find media appearances. And, uh, and again, thank you to everybody. I, I can't write a book that's all about you know, the importance of gratitude and not tell people how grateful I am. And if my gratitude makes some people feel guilty, that's, that's okay, too. Jack, do we have anything else that we need to go through? Uh, I don't. I don't see why. Yeah, me but. neither. Lol, nothing matters. Um, <laughs> That's not what I meant. So anyway, uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, whatever, uh, the remnant pod at gmail dot com or Jonah Remnant at Twitter. And thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. <laughs>